And please turn with me this evening to Psalm 51. Last time we met uh, together, we considered Nathan's confrontation of David in regard to his adultery with Bathsheba. The deed had been committed many months, possibly better than a year earlier, and now David is confronted with all of the consequences of his sin. We considered last week just how far the consequences of David's sin extended, seeing the death of Uriah, of the child, as well as the death of however many men it took to cover Uriah's murder. David was confronted with the selfishness and short-sightedness of his own decision to yield to his lust, sacrificing the joys and rewards of obedience on the altar of immediate and temporary fulfillment of his desires. The consequences were great for David's evil deed. Nathan tells David that the sword would not depart from his house. One of his own house would betray him. And in response to such consequences, uh, David responds with a short phrase, which we find in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13. This verse says, And David said unto Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And then it says, Nathan said unto David, The Lord hath put away thy sin, thou shalt not die. I have sinned against the Lord, David said. He recognized it. He admits it. And this is all that we read out of the mouth of David in 2 Samuel. I've sinned against the Lord, and Nathan says, It's put away from you. The Lord's words to David, that he had put away David's sin, David will not die, were the result of David's admission of guilt, and yet, this is not all of the interaction we find between David and God on this topic. We find, rather, a prayer of David, and that's what Psalm 51 is. It's a prayer of David, a prayer of confession, and it's specifically in relation to his adultery with Bathsheba, and his murder of Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. And so as we step into the text, notice how it is introduced in Psalm 51.1. When you read in the Psalms, if I don't, all the Bibles are a little bit different in how they do this, but in my Bible, the, the font is large and it's effectively about the same font that you would have in the text itself. When you read that, when you see the font to be the same like that, what you're seeing is something that is actually in the Hebrew text. If you, if you have titles that are in a different font, maybe it's italicized, maybe it's centered, that's probably something supplied by the translator or supplied by the publisher. But if you see it in the same font, if you see it also in, in a similar font to the rest of it, even though it doesn't have a verse number next to it, it's actually in the Hebrew text. It's inspired scripture. And so we read this piece of inspired scripture to the chief musician, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came unto him after he had gone in to Bathsheba. The psalm was written as the explanation of David's phrase, I have sinned against the Lord. David indeed named his sin, which is the essence of confession, but there is much more under the surface. And this evening we're going to walk through this confession of David and in doing so understand what God expects from us when it comes to confession of sin and what we can expect from God when indeed we do confess our sin. And so David begins in verse 1 and 2 with uh, the result which he is coming to God seeking. He says, Have mercy upon me, O God, 
according to thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me throughly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. He immediately asks for mercy. He comes to God and he says, Have mercy upon me, O God. And remember, this is not just a prayer. This is a psalm, which means it's Hebrew poetry. And so David is writing this in a way. And notice he says, To the chief musician. Isn't that interesting? That he is sending this to the chief musician. What that means is that David is indeed publishing this for other people to benefit from his sin. Not from the sin itself, but from his confession. Benefiting from this. Have mercy upon me, he starts out. On the basis, not of his own worth, but on the basis of God's loving kindness. Now at Legacy Baptist Church, we define mercy as unmerited pardon. Not being given something that I deserve. That's as opposed to unmerited, of grace, right? Which is unmerited favor. Being given something I don't deserve. So grace is being given something I don't deserve. Mercy is not being given something which I do deserve. And that's what David is asking for here. Mercy. Don't give me what I deserve for this, God. I am asking for your mercy. Pardon, forgiveness, release from his transgression. And David rightly recognizes that this release will not come from his effort, nor will it come from his merit. He can't earn it. He can't work himself into it. He can't be worthy of it. He has no concept that he can try to make it up to God, that he can try to earn his forgiveness. No statement of personal worth. No statement of effort to reform himself or or, or to change. There, There isn't even a, I won't do it again. He simply says that he needs mercy. He's seeking it from the Lord according to God's loving kindness. And he asks this on that basis of God's tender mercies, the multitude of thy tender mercies, he says. God, by his own declaration, is a merciful God, isn't he? And David says, can you give me a piece of that God? That God would blot out his transgression. There are three primary words in the Bible for offenses against God. And they are often used uh, semi-interchangeably within contexts. But each one does have a unique meaning. Sin, and there are three different Hebrew words, not just three different English words. Sin means to miss the mark. To miss the mark of God's holiness. Iniquity speaks of a bending, a perverting, a twisting of God's word. And transgression is a word that means rebellion against the law, specifically in the case of God, rebellion against God's law, rebellion against God's expectations. So sin, missing the mark of God's holiness. Iniquity, bending, twisting, perverting God's word. Transgression, rebelling against God's law. Now, in this case, David focuses upon his transgression his rebellion against the law of God, although we're going to see all of, these verse, uh, all of these words here, right? We're going to see them all. Now, he says, however, have mercy upon me according to thy loving kindness. And in a moment, he'll say, I acknowledge my transgression. He's asking God to blot out his transgression. Blot out my offense 
of your law. So if we're taking a tally, if you're standing before a judge and that judge looks at the sheet and you've been arrested and you have done something wrong and you've been convicted and you have a record, he's saying blot out that record. That would be the transgression, right? That would be the offense against the law. That would be the record of rebellion. God, please blot out the record of rebellion against you. And that kind of idea of being blotted out as it's already written, it needs to be crossed out. It needs to be, can't be erased, but it can be blotted, right? It can be covered. He then asks for himself, not only that the record of sin would be removed, but also that the stain of sin would be cleansed. Blot out the transgression, and that makes perfect sense, understanding what a transgression is. But then he says, wash me from mine iniquity. And he uses these two other words. Cleanse my heart and mind from this perverted thinking about you. I have missed something about your character or I've twisted something about you and your word and it needs to be straightened out. Wash that away from me. And then he says, cleanse me from my sin. Finally, his soul would be cleansed from missing the mark of God's holiness. I have missed the mark of the holiness, which means I am less than that. I have fallen short of your righteousness. Cleanse me and bring me back to that place of right, rightness. That's the prayer here. And he continues in verse 3, again looking at his transgression. He says, For I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. I acknowledge that I offended the Word of God, the law of God. I'm a rebel. And my sin, my incapacity, my falling short, my missing of the mark, I get it. I see it. I agree with it. I have fallen short. I missed the mark of your holiness. So blot out my transgression. Wash me from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. Because I am guilty, David says, my sin is before me. I know it. I see it. I am guilty. I'm not trying to hide it. I'm not pretending I'm not guilty. I'm not just overlooking it. I am guilty. Such is the heart of confession. Confession cannot truly take place where a man cannot acknowledge that he's done something wrong. You cannot, you cannot say, I'm guilty, if you don't think you're guilty. You cannot confess something, the idea of saying the same as acknowledge something, if you don't believe it. You acknowledge it by recognizing that there's guilt. The very foundation of the heart of confession is acknowledgement. Just as important as understanding our offense is understanding, however, who we have offended. Certainly David killed Uriah. David killed Uriah, there's an offense against Uriah. He's offended against Bathsheba. He's offended against many other men and their families. But for all of these offenses, David truly understood where the problem lay. And so he says in verse 4, as he feels the weight of his sin, he says, against thee, thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and clear when thou judgest. David seeks to give no excuses. David seeks not to shift blame, not to change the topic, not to confuse the issue. 
Yes, he sinned against others, and there's that personal offense against others. But he says, God, as far as this is concerned, as far as my confession is concerned, here's what I am declaring, that I stand alone before you. It's me and you, and I've sinned against you. I have done wrong in your eyes. I have done wickedness in your sight. You're right. I'm wrong. You're just. I'm unjust. You're holy. I am sinful. David acknowledges not only his actions, but God's righteousness in judging those actions. He says, I'm admitting all of this, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest, and clear when thou judgest. David places himself under God's authority and yields any right he might have, or he might be tempted to assert to God. No excuses, God, I've sinned. But, but, but she tempted me. But she should have been somewhere where she was covering herself. No, he doesn't say that. He says, I've sinned. But I was really tired that day. I, I, it had been a long week and my, my defenses were down. He doesn't say that. He says, I've sinned. But God, you're holding me to too high of a standard. After all, I'm only human. No, he says, I've sinned. God is just. God is right. God is good. God's judgments are true and let every man be a liar. And that's what David is saying. I am saying these things, God. I am justifying you. That when you speak, you're justified. That when you judge, you are in the clear. Your judgments were right. Your words were right. Everything that you said was right. No excuses. You're right. I'm wrong. That's the end of it. That's what David is saying here. Confession, brothers and sisters in Christ, is humility. It's acknowledgement. The human heart can spend all day finding every excuse for our sin, can't we? Have you ever marveled at the human capacity to excuse his faults? We can always find a reason why it's not our fault that we did something. But that's not confession. At the end of the day, sin is sin. At the end of the day, God is God and we are not. God makes the rules and if we offend the rules, we are in the wrong. There may have been other, there may, there may have been reasons, but reasons are not excuses. And that's what David is saying. He continues in verses 5 and 6. Behold, he says, I was shapen in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts, in the inward parts, and in the hidden part thou shalt make me to know wisdom. David continues to humble himself before God, and he recognizes the reality of his sin nature. This is not David refusing responsibility for his actions. He's not saying the devil made me do it, or, well, God, I can't help it, I'm human. What this is, and we already know this because David already said in verse 3, I acknowledge my transgression, my sin is ever before me. But he recognizes as well that he is naturally a sinful man. He says he was conceived in sin. He acknowledges that from the moment of conception. Notice he doesn't say birth. He says conception, right? I was conceived in sin. That from the moment of conception, he had a sin nature. Strongly implying, by the way, that life begins at conception, does it not? In sin did my mother conceive me. At conception, 
I was sinful. In other words, sin nature from the womb. We are born into Adam's sin. We have not made choices yet, yea or nay, but we are born with Adam's sin. That sin nature. But though we are formed in sin, yet, David says, yet though I'm formed in sin, you desire truth, God. I'm formed in sin, you desire truth. I was conceived having missed the mark. But you desire truth. And his expectation of truth is not swayed by the disadvantage of our sinful birth. Our sinful birth, again, is no excuse for our sinful decisions. In verse 6, David writes this interesting phrase, In the hidden part thou shalt make me to know wisdom. He says, I was conceived in... in, um, I was shapen in iniquity. I was conceived in sin. You desire truth in the inward parts. And in the hidden part, thou shalt make me to know wisdom. David contrasts his own sinfulness here with God's desire for truth, and he falls back upon God to do something for him in this scenario. The Bible tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and that the knowledge of the holy is understanding. When it says the knowledge of the holy is understanding, that's the knowledge of the Holy One, the knowledge of God. As David writes his mind, changes that iniquity, the bending to making it straight, he reorients his thinking to bring it back in line with God and in God's way. David expresses confidence that he will once again know wisdom, understand the right, live according to that wisdom, that he will once again, God will in, in his hidden part, in his inward man, help him to understand the fear of the Lord. And thus to understand wisdom. True confession is an action which brings with it the intent of reformation. The desire that such sin would never be done again. And that's the idea. God, I'm confessing this to you. I'm asking you to to take this away from me. But I am also saying that you desire truth in me and I desire it too. I desire to do right. I desire to be right. Continuing in verse 7 and 8. David contemplates the reason why his confession is so urgent. And the reason is that as he walks out of fellowship with God, there's no joy. There's no gladness. There's only pain and shame. He says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. There's great significance to David's words here. Hyssop is a plant with many medicinal uses, but David's mention of it here is probably far more significant than just the medicinal uses of hyssop. In the Old Testament, we find hyssop come up several times. Hyssop was the plant which God told the Israelites to use to spread the blood of the Passover lamb on the doorpost and over the lintel of their their house when the angel of the Lord came through and killed the firstborn of every child in Egypt. Hyssop was prescribed in Leviticus 14 to be a part of the cleansing ceremony for lepers. That when a leper, if a leper was made clean and they presented themselves before the priest, they would 
they would, hyssop would be a part of that cleansing ceremony to cleanse a house as well after a body dies. If a body died in the house, when that body was taken out of the house, they would cleanse the house using hyssop. Hyssop was ceremonially connected to the concept of cleansing from disease and uncleanness. That is the imagery of hyssop. Leprosy, of course, is an Old Testament imagery for sin, right? The leprous man that would become white as snow. It's that Old Testament imagery of one who is stuck in a disease in which there's, it's just going to eat away at them until they die. And that's like sin. And so hyssop being used as a cleansing agent for the ceremonial, ceremonially, ceremony of cleansing. There we go for them. And that picture David brings into his prayer about his sin. Cleanse me, God, with hyssop. This instrument that is used ceremonially to cleanse from uncleanness and disease. God, I have an uncleanness of my own that I need cleansed. Cleanse me with hyssop. Remove my defilement. Purge me from my uncleanness. And then he asks to be washed. Wash me that he may be whiter than snow. There, there are a few natural occurrences that we find which better reflect the concept of cleanliness than a fresh coating of snow. Is there not? You wake up in the morning in the winter and a fresh coating of snow layers over the ground and, and the cars haven't really been driving on it yet and the snow plows haven't gotten there yet and the people haven't taken their dogs for a walk yet and it's just, it's, it's clean, it's crisp, it's smooth, the wind has kind of smoothed it over. There's this beautiful cleanliness to it. It just feels clean, crisp. And this imagery is not lost on God. This is the imagery that David brings, but God uses this imagery as well. Hundreds of years later, during the ministry of Isaiah the prophet, God would tell the nation of Israel in Isaiah 1.18, Come now and let us reason Together, saith the Lord, though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. He uses two different pictures of cleanliness, of white, of, of that untainted nature. One of them is wool. The second is snow. White as snow. David's object in this forgiveness that he is asking in the pardon of his transgression, in the cleansing of his spirit, is restoration of relationship. That he might again hear joy and gladness. A joy which had been overcome by the shame of conviction. David expresses the grief over his sin as if his bones had been broken. He has no strength in his body as he feels the effects of his guilt. Now, this is a concept which God's people need to understand as well. The guilt of unconfessed sin, bearing the load of sin in one's heart. We see the imagery here as this beautiful psalm takes place, and he's using this imagery of his bones being broken and desiring them to be healed. Obviously, his bones were not physically broken at this point. However, God's people need to understand that guilt has a physical effect on our bodies. Guilt can, spiritual conditions can have real physical effects on our bodies. 
it, just because David was using this idea of his bones being broken does not necessarily mean that he was not feeling some sort of physical effects. Physical side effects of his guilt and his sin. In fact, we, we read a similar concept in David's other confession psalm, Psalm 34, where he says this in verses 2 through 4. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no guile. When I kept silence, when I, when I kept silence, when I didn't confess my sin, when I bear my own guilt, he says, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me, my moisture is turned into the drought of summer. Selah. He describes the state of unconfessed sin as a time when he kept silence and when his bones were, were waxing old, when he felt achy, when he, he had no, no strength in him. The hand of God was heavy upon him. Have you ever had that feeling like you're just all dried up? Like if, if, uh, if you could at all imagine it, you'd, you'd just be one big raisin, just all shriveled and dry. Well, you're spiritually sucked dry. That's that feeling. And that feeling of having nothing left, of being spiritually sucked dry, even if it's not over sin, even if it's just being sapped, being dry because you've, you've not had a, a good relationship with the Lord or, or you've, you've, uh, been, you've, you've spent so much time caring for others that you've perhaps neglected your own spirit for a while, that, that feeling of being just sucked dry can have physical effects on you. There's just nothing left. And that's how David describes himself while living in unconfessed sin. And both here and in Psalm 51, we read of that aching, that pain that he says he was going through. We live in a society which serves the constant testimony of the physical effects of sin on the body. In the same way, the last 20 years has revealed the incredible effects of, of fast-paced modern lifestyle and intense stress upon the mind and body, so too we can observe the physical effects of guilt and sin upon people. The guilt associated with unconfessed sin can cause mental instability, things such as depression and bipolarism and schizophrenia. The guilt associated with unconfessed sin can bring about physical problems, achiness and digestion issues and, and lack of motivation and lack of strength. And, and I'm not saying that these symptoms are always a result of sin. Don't get me wrong here. But what I'm saying is, in the same way that we find other mental issues such as stress, anxiety and fatigue causing mental and physical breakdowns, one of the other sources for these breakdowns that we see in society is the weight of sin that people bear. The guilt that they carry around with them at all times. And I've known this, I've seen this in, in my life and in others, where unconfessed sin has caused physical stresses, physical issues. I knew a young lady who, upon confessing her sin and forgiving those who had hurt her, went from a diagnosis of bipolarism to, in a year's time, being free completely from any symptoms or effects of bipolarism. Well, what had changed? What had changed is she had confessed her sin and she no longer carried the guilt. David testifies in both of his psalms of confession regarding the physical effects of unconfessed sin upon the mind and the body. And he continues in verses 9 and 10. He says, Hide thy face from my sins. Blot out all of mine iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. 
This is the mercy that he seeks. David is asking God in his mercy and according to his kindness that he would purge his sin, wash him from filthiness, hide his face from David's sin, create in David a clean heart, renewing once again a right spirit. This is a request for restoration for fellowship. It's for forgiveness. Forgiveness is not about forgetting wrongs that are done unto you. Forgiveness is about not remembering the wrongs that are done unto you. Hiding your face from others' offenses. Purposefully putting them away from you. As we speak of forgiveness at Legacy Baptist Church, we speak of a, of a purposeful, a conscious choice that we would not factor another's offenses into our dealings with them. That's forgiveness. This does not imply that we do not remember the wrongs that have been done. This does not imply that we, we don't understand what has been done, but much rather it indicates that we are choosing not to use their offenses as the basis for how we treat them or how we interact with them. And this is what David asks of God. This is what confession in any generation asks of God. God, you know my sin, you see my sin, but my request is that you would not factor my sin into your dealings with me. That you would forgive me. And with forgiveness inherently comes restoration. Forgiveness does not always mean there's not consequences. But forgiveness does bring restoration of fellowship. He says, renew a right spirit within me. His request continues in verses 11 through 13. Cast me not away from thy presence. Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation, of thy salvation, excuse me, and uphold me with thy free spirit. Then will I teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. David's concern here is not that he would lose his salvation. He's not concerned about that. That's not the forgiveness he seeks. In fact, the whole of the biblical record tells us that Old Testament saints uh, were not sealed with the Holy Spirit at the moment of salvation like we are. The Spirit was not given until Pentecost. So he's not afraid that he's going to lose the indwelling Holy Spirit here. He's afraid that he's going to lose his filling. And remember, in the Old Testament, as we talked about in our first Samuel series, the filling of the Holy Spirit was unto ministry, right? Saul was filled temporarily in order to, to meet the needs of leading a theocracy and leading a kingdom as God's representative. So God filled him for that. And then when God rejected him, he removed his spirit from Saul and placed it onto David. And that's the spirit that David is afraid of. David probably thinks back to when Saul had the spirit of God removed from him. And he says, oh God, please don't do that to me. Please don't do that to me. Don't take your spirit away from me in the same way you took it away from Saul. Because after that, Saul went crazy. And, and, and there was nothing he could do. He, 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 he was so stuck in his pride. He no longer had your ability to lead and everything crumbled. God, I can't have that. that. That cannot be. Please don't take your spirit away from me. And this is David's request, that he would not lose the filling of the Holy Spirit which enabled him to lead God's people. But notice the other consequences of David's unconfessed sin. Not only did he fall out of fellowship with the Lord, but he also lost his joy. He asked God to restore unto him the joy of his salvation. As Jesus walked upon the earth, he exhorted his disciples in John 15 to abide in him. That idea of abiding in him was to, to maintain fellowship. And he told them in verses 10 and 11, If ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. 
These things have I spoken unto you that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full. Jesus explicitly connects fullness of joy, the joy of Christ being in us, and us having fullness of joy to what? Not to simply being a Christian, but to fellowship, to abiding, to walking with the Lord. That brings joy. David experienced the weight of unconfessed sin, and as he did so, he lost the joy that is given to all those who abide in fellowship with the true and living God. This same idea is expressed in the next phrase. He says, uphold me with thy free spirit. The word free there literally means generous or voluntary or willing spirit. That David will be restored not only unto joy, but also to a spirit which can freely commune with God. Give me that open relationship with you once again. Have you ever been in one of those situations where there's just something between you and someone else and it's like, conversation is awkward and it's just not opening up and there's something between you and you, you could normally talk all day with them but you can't even get through talking about the weather with them really. There's just something there. Husband and wife, have you been there? I've been there where there's just something that happened and I'm being stubborn and I'm not asking my wife to forgive me for whatever I did or she's being stubborn and she hasn't come and asked me for forgiveness yet and there's just kind of a, there's something there. And there's just not that openness. And then when, when we finally, whoever humbles himself, herself, and comes and says, hey, I'm just, I, I shouldn't have said that. I shouldn't have done that. Will you forgive me? Yes, I forgive you. And then it's like, click. And hey, how was your day? Oh, and you just, you just get back into it. Maybe with a friend, maybe with a father or a mother. Have you experienced a brother or sister? Have you experienced that before? There's an offense. And when that offense is lifted, it's like, it's, it's, it's like you, plug, you plug yourself back into them. That's the idea here. He can freely commune with God. Uphold me with thy voluntary spirit. And notice what he says. Then, as I realign myself with you, God, I will resume my work of teaching others how to be rightly related to God. As I realign myself with you, then I can show others how to be right with you. And one of the ways that he does that is by the psalm, right? He says, God, I will show others how to be rightly related to you. I will teach others, transgressors, the right way. And then he finishes the psalm and he says, here you go, chief musician, publish this for everybody to read. And by the way, a part of this psalm that was published was a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. No no secrets there. Verses 14 and 15. David says, Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, thou God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud thy righteousness. O Lord, open thou my lips, and my mouth shall show forth thy praise. Lest we think that because the introduction of the psalm only mentions his adultery, David's murder of Uriah is not in view here. We get to verse 14, and what does David say? The only thing he mentions in the psalm itself is, Deliver me from Blood guiltiness. A guilt associated with the shedding of innocent blood. David states that such great forgiveness and mercy will inspire in him great praise. 
He continues in verses 16 and 17. For thou desirest not sacrifice, else I would give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, and a broken and contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. As David finalizes his confession, he acknowledges the character of God as it relates to forgiveness. Forgiveness is not an outworking of action, it's an outworking of attitude. Similar to God's often rebuke of Israel in Isaiah 1 or Hosea 6 or Micah 6 or many of the other places in God's Word, David rejects a common misunderstanding regarding how God views our sin and confession and forgiveness. We'll cover this deeper in our application this evening, but what David recognizes is that he cannot buy his way out of sin. He cannot just offer a sacrifice while maintaining a heart of rebellion and expect that the animal burning on the altar would manipulate God into thinking that he acknowledges his sin and so covering it. He can't just say, okay, God, I I do wrong, whatever. I'm just going to go to church and then uh, I'll do enough good things that the bad thing will kind of fall away. I'll earn your favor back by doing more good things than bad. The sacrifice on the altar is indeed something that God asked for, but only as an extension of an inward brokenness over one's sin. And notice those Hebrew words. The word broken literally means to burst. It's used 145 times in the Old Testament, and it speaks of bones, doors, vessels, trees being broken, being shattered. What is it that God wants to see when we sin? Not a burning animal but a spirit which is broken, which is shattered over the offense that we've committed against God. God, I did it. Or more likely, God, I did it again. I hate this sin. I hate it, God. Why am I a sinner? I hate this. And then the word contrite literally means collapse. A collapsed heart. It says a broken and a contrite heart. A Shattered and a collapsed heart doesn't sound very healthy, does it? But in reality, we know that the heart is the mind, right? The heart is our consciousness. The heart is the the seat of our our volition, our emotion, our understanding. Uh, The Jewish mind associated emotional and spiritual concepts with different parts of the body. The loins, right, were the place of strength. The bowels were the place of yearning or desire. The heart is the place of understanding and will. A heart that is contrite, a collapsed heart, a contrite heart, is when your will has given way to God's will. Your will has yielded to God's will. It's when you have given yourself over to God's will. No longer going to stand in stubborn rebellion against God and against His way, relenting. That's the idea of a broken and contrite heart. And when your heart is there, you have found the sacrifice which pleases God. The sacrifice of a broken and contrite heart. David says this is what God is looking for. A broken spirit over our own sinfulness. True confession is when the essence of your being is broken over your offense of God's holy standard. David finishes this thought in the final two verses and finishes the psalm in the final two verses here. Do good, to thy good, do good in thy good pleasure unto Zion. Build thou the walls of Jerusalem. 
Then shalt thou be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness, with burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then shall they offer bullocks upon thine altar. What David is saying here is that when he has reflected a broken and a contrite heart, then God in his unchanging character will hide his eyes from that sin, will reinitiate God's blessings, and will accept then those outward acts of religious piety. We'll accept again the sacrifices on the altar. We'll accept again. So in other words, the outward acts that we do with an inward heart of rebellion are no more acceptable to God than outward acts of rebellion. But when our heart is right and aligned with Him, then God can again take those outward acts of rebellion or outward acts of of submission and He can bless them because it's led by an inward heart of submission. We can do all the good things we want to do, but if in our heart we are living in rebellion against God, those natural blessings of righteousness will not come to us. Because we haven't done what God has asked us to do, which is to align our hearts. Now we're going to take these concepts as we finish the psalm and solidify them this this evening through uh, five application points. The first two points are going to take all that we've talked about concerning confession and formalize our definition. What does it mean to confess sin unto God? The third point is going to be a reminder of what confession and forgiveness is not. And then the final two points are going to settle upon what confession and forgiveness produce. Point number one, confession is acknowledgement, not just observation. Confession is acknowledgement, not just observation. You cannot confess as a third party. You can't just look around and say, hey, this is just me being an objective third party saying this is wrong and that's enough. When we speak of salvation, we are careful always to mention that belief is so much more than mental understanding, right? We are always careful to mention that belief unto salvation is not just me knowing Jesus died on the cross, me even knowing I'm a sinner. I tell people when I'm at the jail, you can, I, if I wrote my name in this, uh, your name in this Bible and I bought it for you and it was, it was bought for you, it has your name in it and I hold it out to you. And I say, this is for you. And you walk away and you say, Pastor Wickler got me a Bible and he wrote my name on it and it's for me, but you didn't take it. It's not really yours. You didn't accept the gift. You mentally know it, but you never received it. It's the same with confession. Confession of sin is not so much about knowing that you have sinned as it is aligning yourself with God's perspective that you have sinned. It's it's acknowledging that you have offended a holy God. It is recognizing that you have done evil in God's sight. It is justifying the righteousness of God in contrast to you and your actions. It is standing before God and saying, God, there's no excuse here. You're right. I'm wrong. You're holy. I'm sinful. Your standard is best. And for whatever reason, I have chosen less than best. And there will be reasons not the least of which is our sin nature, but reasons and excuses are two entirely different things, aren't they? Reason says, this is how I got here. Excuse is saying, that means you should let me off the hook. No excuse is God, even if there are reasons. The sacrifice of God acceptable for forgiveness of our sin is a heart, and this again, we're, we're speaking of confession of sin as, as believers, is a heart and a spirit which is broken over your sin. Now, a broken and contrite heart may not always mean emotion. We're not all emotional people here. You don't have to fall upon your knees and weep over your sin. Some people will. But not everyone does. 
Other people might, uh, their, their, their brokenness might not necessarily exemplify itself in weeping. It may exemplify itself in frustration. I'm more or less one of those. I, my, 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 my contrite heart, my broken heart is often exhibited in, in just personal frustration over my own sin. We all experience this brokenness perhaps in a different way, but it will be there if our confession is genuine. So when we read the most important verse in the New Testament regarding confession, which is 1 John 1, verse 9, if we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What we are reading here is that when we sin, we know we have sinned, and we come to God recognizing God is holy, we are sinful, and with a humble heart of contrition, we would say, We are ready to acknowledge our sin and to realign our intentions, our desires, and our priorities with that of God. God, I've sinned. I've done this wrong. I admit that it's wrong. I agree with you that it was sinful. I don't want to be doing this. I'm realigning my heart with you. Your way is the right way. My way was the wrong way. That's confession. And this brings us to our second point. Confession aligns the heart with obedience. David mentioned within the context of confession that as God blotted out his transgression, as David's spirit once again felt the joy and gladness of a clean heart and of a renewed spirit, that he would then teach transgressors God's way, that sinners would be converted. Confession is intended to be a process of restoration to fellowship, to a normal functioning relationship with God. It's not intended for you to acknowledge, to say, yep, I'm sinning as you continue in sin. That's not confession. Now, you lie. You know you lied. You know it was wrong. You say, God, it was wrong. I lied. I shouldn't have done that. I'm not going to do it again. Help me not to do it again. And 30 minutes later, you lie again. Does that mean the first confession was not genuine? No. No, it doesn't. However, if you go to God and say, God, I lied, and nothing's really going to change. I'm just going to keep on doing it, but hey, I need, to, I need your blessing, so I sinned. That's not confession. Because your heart has every intention of doing it the next time it, hap- it needs to has every intention of continuing in that sin. If your heart has every intention of continuing in sin, then, then, then your heart is not in a place of confession. But if, and this is what Jesus taught to Peter, right? When Peter said, how many times when my brother offends me, should I forgive him till seven times? And Jesus said, when a brother comes up and, he, and when he has done a wrong against you and he repents... And, and, he, and literally Jesus uses the word repents there and he repents, you should forgive him 70 times, 7 times. As many times as, as possible. Forever. You should forgive him. That's the idea here. It's not that we're not going to offend God in the same way again. But it is that at that moment we have acknowledged what, what we have done is wrong We are realigning our heart and our mind with God and we are ready to not do it again. We are ready to seek that which is right. This is a normal, functioning relationship with God. That's what we read just a few moments ago out of the mouth of our Lord in John 15, 11. 
And as we have just considered the importance of 1 John 1.9 to our lives as it relates to confession, consider what John the Apostle wrote just prior to it in verses 3 and 4 of 1 John 1. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you that ye also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And these things write we unto you that your joy may be full. John wrote an epistle of the Scriptures about how to be in proper fellowship with God that your joy may be full. This is it. This is proper confession. Do you see the connection? Proper fellowship with God means fullness of Christian joy. David's heart lost that joy as he fell out of fellowship with God because he was doing that which was wrong when he confessed it. And he said, I'm realigning my heart with your heart. Then there is a realignment in fellowship and that brings joy. And in anticipation of his forgiveness and his cleansing and his restoration, he had joy. Now, where I'm going with the second point is this. Confession is not that when you've sinned, you're planning to continue in that sin. You will go into true confession understanding that you are human and that you will sin again. But you will not ever go into true confession with the intention to continue in that sin. That is a heart that has failed to align itself with God's word, with brokenness, And that is a confession which God will not regard. So confession is acknowledgement, not just observation. Confession aligns the heart with obedience. Hastening on to point number three. Remember, we're, we're kind of changing our direction a little bit in point three. The first two defined what confession is. Point three, what confession is not. Confession seeks unmerited pardon, not earned reinstatement. This is very important, young people. I lived for years not understanding this. I lived for years with a messed up understanding of this and it it deeply impacted, stunted my relationship with God. Right at the beginning of the psalm, David appealed to God's mercy according to his loving kindness and the multitude of his tender mercies. And that's a beautiful thought, but notice what isn't there. Merit, effort, works. And as I mentioned, I'm speaking out of my own experience on this point. For years, I, forgive, I, I perceived forgiveness to be a process. I perceived forgiveness from God in the same way that I always kind of offered my own forgiveness to others. Over time, based on merit. In other words, somebody did something wrong, offended me. And I would, over time, forgive them as I perceived that they were actually sorry. As I perceived that they earned my forgiveness, I would slowly offer it. They would need to work for it. They would need to show themselves worthy of it. Quite literally, my forgiveness was conditioned upon their effort to make it up to me. And because of this, when I confessed sin to God, I felt as though I had to go through a process. So I would get down on my knees and I would confess my sin to God. And I believed He forgave me right away. But then do you know what went through my mind? Okay, how many days am I going to need to live right before God can really start using me again? Before I can really be back into fellowship with God to the extent where He can begin to 
work through me, where His Spirit can be. So, so I sin today, and today is Wednesday, so Thursday, Friday. So, so I would begin thinking, and, and I would get to maybe Friday or Saturday, and I'd say, well, I've done pretty good these couple of days. I haven't done this sin, or I haven't done that thing. And so I'm probably at the point now where God can begin to use me again, and I'm probably kind of work myself back into favor with God. And that's how I thought, and that's how I operated. And so that as I confessed my sin, I felt as though there was an immediate forgiveness, but not immediate restoration. But that's not what the Bible teaches, is it? That when we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That there is immediate forgiveness and restoration. That the moment I truly confess my sin, it's done. It's gone. I'm restored. I'm ready to go. And praise God for that. I saw God as working on a sliding scale. How many days How many pious, righteous things would I need to do before I had restoration of fellowship? But that is not what God says. 1 John 1, 9. Confess it. He'll forgive it. He'll cleanse it. We move on. No steps in between. And how can God do that? Well, because my sin has already been paid for. Right? Because Jesus Christ hung on the cross, endured the shame, the contradiction of sinners... He made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. The punishment for my sinful deed has already been placed on Christ. (coughs) So when I come to God in true confession, God says it's paid already. I forgive you. You are restored. No need to work it off because it's already been worked off. Christ already worked off my sin. He died on the cross for me. God's wrath was satisfied on the cross. David does not appeal to his effort or to time when he appeals to God's forgiveness. He simply appeals to God's mercy. And that's what we see here. God's people need to understand that forgiveness is not a process. It is a point. When you confess your sin, if you are truly confessing your sin, consistent with the Bible's description of an acknowledgement of sin, then it's done. You're forgiven. You're restored. You're usable. You're back. No process, no earning it, no deserving it. Unmerited pardon. Mercy above mercy. Final section. So section one, what is confession? Section two, what it is not. Section three, two more points. First of these two points, point number four in total, confession produces cleansing. Sin is a taint. We all understand that there's an unseen world, right? There's a world that we don't see. There's a battle going on. There's demonic forces. There's angelic forces. There, there is an unseen world. There's, there's, there's treasures being laid up in heaven. All of these things are happening. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, the rulers of the darkness of this world, spiritual wickedness in high places. We reap what we sow. That's a spiritual concept, right? That we reap what we sow. And, and we see that. We know that. Even though we don't, we don't see it physically all the time, we know it's there. This physical world is touched by spiritual things such as prayer and fasting. We saw that last week. Sin, more than just a physical problem, God's people need to understand this sin also causes spiritual damage. Sin is a spiritual taint upon the spirit. James tells us sin bringeth forth death, spiritual separation. Back in 1 John 1, once again, we read this in verse 6. If we say 
that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. When sin is in our lives, we walk in darkness and we are not in fellowship. We are not walking in fellowship if there's sin in our life. It's as simple as that. There is separation. There is a spiritual sinful taint that is upon us. Yes, Jesus Christ's sacrifice has covered our sin unto salvation, unto eternal life. But when we sin and we have sin regarding it in our hearts, the Bible tells us the Lord will not hear us. Why is that? Because we're out of fellowship with Him. Because sin taints. It must. It will. It always does. Sin muddies our discernment. It taints our judgment. If the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, then we can only rightly infer that sin competes against wisdom. That wisdom and sin are on opposite ends of the spectrum. And the more we have given into sin, the less we have wisdom and discernment and understanding in our lives. But confession, David tells us, brings cleansing. A cleansing of the guilty conscience. A cleansing of the sin-tainted spirit. David asks to be made whiter than snow, that the spirit which has become dirtied in itself can then be made clean again, washed clean. That the conscience can be made sensitive to the things of the spirit again, that the stain of sin can be removed. And so David, as he considers his forgiveness, states that in the hidden part thou shalt make me to know wisdom, that that as he confesses his sin, David's spirit will be healed, will be cleansed. But confession has another result as well, and we've spoken of it. Let's just lay it down. Finally, confession restores fellowship. John fifteen four, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine. No more can ye, except ye abide in me. You have zero capacity to do anything that pleases God apart from the Spirit of God. Whatsoever is not of faith is sin, the Bible tells us. Hebrews 11.6 says, But without faith it is impossible to please Him. The Bible says, Walk in the Spirit and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. Galatians chapter 5. You can bear no spiritual fruit when you are not walking in fellowship with God. Because you're not connected to the vine. And what fruit are we called to bear? Well, that's the fruit of the Spirit, Right? So let's talk about that briefly. Galatians 5.16 Walk in the Spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. If we are walking in the Spirit, if we are walking apart from the flesh in the Spirit, the, the lust of the flesh will not bear itself out in our lives. The fruit of the Spirit will bear itself out in our lives and we will please God. But in order to be this, in order to walk in the Spirit, we must be connected to the vine. We must be in fellowship. And the only way to maintain fellowship with Christ is to confess our sin. This is God's prescription for restored fellowship. The Christian life is not an easy thing because the world, the flesh, and the devil are constantly calling us to rebel against God. But though the Christian life is not easy, it's not necessarily complicated either. Salvation is by grace through faith. Fellowship is by mercy through confession. Spiritual fruit is by the Holy Spirit through obedience. This is it. You get saved by grace. You stay in fellowship through mercy and confession. And then you bear spiritual fruit through obedience. Get saved. Walk in obedience. When you fall out of obedience, 
You confess. Brings you back into obedience. You keep walking in obedience. You're bearing the fruit of the Spirit. You fall out of, out of obedience. You stop bearing the fruit of the Spirit. You see something's wrong. You find out what's wrong. You confess. God's mercy covers it. He forgives you of your sin. You're back in fellowship. You're walking in obedience. You're bearing the fruit of the Spirit again. That's the Christian life. David committed a terrible sin. Several of them, in fact. And his sin has terrible consequences. But one of those consequences is not eternal separation from God. He was forgiven. His spirit was cleansed. His joy and gladness restored and his capacity to be used was repaired. And so too can we, according to God's loving kindness and the multitude of his tender mercies, as we understand and utilize this blessed gift of confession in our lives. Let's pray.